All right. Well, today's a big day. Today is a big day because today we are moving on in our journey, our summer-long journey studying the Minor Prophets. We're moving on into a whole new book today. We have finished Haggai. We finished Zechariah. And today we're moving into the book of Malachi, the only Italian prophet in the Old Testament. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. All right, I see some. We're not. Uh, we're not looking at Malachi this uh, this morning. We're going to be starting our series in the book of Malachi, and uh, Malachi is a, a great book. And we're going to begin today. I heard a story this uh, this last week about a man. It was a Sunday morning. He was having a hard time getting out of bed that Sunday, and his wife came up and started shaking him and said, "Hey, come on, get up. You got to get ready for church." And he said, I don't want to go to church. Those people don't like me, and, and I just don't want to go. And, and she said, come on, get up. you got to go. And he says, well, give me three good reasons why I need to go. And, and she says, well, number one, it's Sunday. Number two, I'm your wife. And number three, you're the pastor. Now get up and get going. <laughs> now, I thought that was funny because I've had some Sunday mornings like that. I could kind of relate, you know, where you just kind of want to, you know, tuck your head under the covers and say, I don't want to go, don't make me. Well, I, I, I wonder if that's a little bit how Malachi felt when God commissioned him to bring this message to the people of Israel. You know, I wonder when the, the Holy Spirit came knocking on Malachi's door and said, hey, I've got a message for you to share. I think when Malachi heard the message God wanted him to deliver, I wouldn't be surprised if Malachi kind of pulled the covers over his head and said, don't make me go, I don't want to go. Because as we're going to see here this morning, the message that God delivers to the people of Israel uh, through the prophet Malachi is, is somewhat of a difficult message. It's a, uh, it's a, it's a tough message. Malachi, uh, he doesn't pull any punches and he hits pretty close to home. And his message is a word that resonates still today for many of us. Uh, some of the common things that Israel was dealing with in their relationship with God, we still struggle with in our relationship with God. And we're going to talk about those things in our series uh, starting here this morning. I want to give you a little bit, a little bit of a uh, background on the prophet and the book Malachi before we open up our passage this morning. Uh, you know, Malachi is interesting in that we don't know a lot about Malachi. Uh, he's the least known prophet in the whole Old Testament. Uh, Malachi, his name means my messenger. And that's all we really know about him is he was used by God as God's messenger. Now, some people get a little upset about that and they think, well, man, you know, shouldn't we, shouldn't we have a little bit more information about this guy? I mean, how can we really, you know, put our confidence in this guy if we don't really know anything about him. And, and I would say to that, I would say, well, you know, it's sort of like your mail carrier. You know, a lot of us aren't on a first name basis with our mail carrier, but we're not really concerned about that. We just want him to deliver the mail, right? And, and that's sort of how it was with Malachi. I think God was more concerned with Malachi's faithfulness than he was with making Malachi famous. You know what I'm saying? And, and so Malachi was God's messenger bringing a difficult message, a needed message to the people of Israel. And, and we're gonna see this uh, message unfold here in the coming weeks. Now Malachi was writing, uh, this book was written around 440 to 420 BC. So in, in, uh, in the mid fifth century. And what's interesting about Malachi is Malachi is the last prophet in the Old Testament. This was the last word from God to the people of Israel for over 400 years until John the Baptist arrived proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. There would be a 400-year span here where the people of Israel didn't hear anything from the Lord. The last message ringing in their ears for 400 years was the message of the prophet Malachi. Now, when Malachi was writing, from a worldly perspective, life was pretty good for Israel. It had been a hundred years since Haggai and Zechariah had prophesied. So all, of, all the books that we've been studying the previous weeks this summer, a hundred years has gone by now from Haggai and Zechariah's time to the time in which Malachi is writing. And during this hundred years, a lot of good things had happened in the life of Israel. Uh, they'd been back from exile in Babylon for over a hundred years now. The temple had been rebuilt. Worship had been reinstituted. In fact, they had had the temple now for 80 years. And worship was taking place in the temple as God prescribed. 
Well, sort of as God prescribed. We'll see that that was one of the issues uh, in the coming weeks. But not only had the temple been rebuilt, but 10 years had passed since Nehemiah had rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. So from an outward standpoint, things were pretty decent, all right? Now, Israel, they were still under the governorship, the authority of the Persians at this time, but they did have a pretty good degree of self-autonomy, right? So they had their temple, they had their city rebuilt, they had their walls rebuilt, and, and they were basically doing their own thing without a lot of oversight from the Persians. Life seemed pretty good. But on the inside, as we're going to see throughout the book of Malachi, the spiritual climate in Israel was a much different thing. In fact, the spiritual climate of Israel was pretty rotten. It was sort of like when you go to the apple orchard and you're picking, picking apples, right? And, and you find that apple and you just think, oh, this, is, this one looks beautiful. This is going to be perfect. And you take a bite into it and then the inside is just rotten and full of worms, right? This is how it was with the nation of Israel when Malachi is ministering to them. Outwardly, a lot looked really good. Inwardly, they had some really serious issues. You see, what had happened with the people of Israel during that 100-year period between Haggai and Zechariah and when Malachi comes to minister to them, over the course of that 100 years, the Israelites, their hearts grew cold towards God and their hearts had become callous towards God. And how did that happen? Well, it happened because they had just responded to these great prophecies in Haggai and Zechariah. And remember, Haggai and Zechariah called them to rebuild Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple. And then Haggai and Zechariah made these promises that the Messiah was going to come. And the Messiah was going to create a new kingdom where Jerusalem would be the centerpiece of God's new kingdom over the whole earth. And over a hundred years had gone by and the Israelites looked around and they said, where's the Messiah? Where's this new kingdom? We're still, we're still under the authority of the Persians, God. I mean, yeah, great, our city's been rebuilt, but where is this king you promised us? And over the course of 100 years, many of the Israelites had basically just kind of given up on the promises of God. And they had lost hope in God's faithfulness, and so they returned that with a lack of faith and a hardened heart towards God. We're going to see as we go through the book of Malachi, the Israelites at this time had really sort of become like a spouse whose love has grown cold to their partner. You know, one of the, one of the hardest, saddest things that we do in our work as pastors is working with couples going through marital struggles. And, and uh, one of the saddest things we see is the situation where one spouse, one partner just has totally gone cold to their, their other, their spouse. And it's so hard when you see somebody who's making attempts and making gestures and overtures trying to renew their love and yet there's just no response from the other person. And it just breaks your heart. And this is what was taking place between God and the Israelites. Malachi is a book of God wooing and calling his people back to him and yet we're going to see that the Israelites just respond with hard-heartedness and indifference. In fact, we're going to see this as the whole book of Malachi is really organized around a series of seven questions phrased by the Israelites, seven cynical and sarcastic questions that the Israelites direct back to God. And Malachi basically is about God responding to this cynical, hard-hearted attitude that the Israelites had adopted towards him. We're going to see in our series how Malachi, in many ways, is like a mirror for our present day. Because a lot of the issues and struggles that the Israelites had in their relationship with God are, are, not, a lot, are not all that different from some of the things that we struggle with in our own lives still today. Like the Israelites, many of us today still struggle with things like skepticism, apathy in our worship, questioning truth, disobeying God's will, failing to honor our marriage vows, withholding our offerings from the Lord. All of these are issues that Malachi is going to address. Now, I, I can see some of you squirming in your seats as we go through that list of things that we're going to look at here in the coming weeks. And, and, and rightfully so. I mean, Malachi is a tough book. It is, and he really doesn't pull any punches here. And for a lot of us, some of the issues that we're going to look at, they, they do hit pretty close to home. 
And, and so I think we just sort of need to prepare our hearts for God to, to challenge us in some ways potentially during the course of this series because really the whole book was about God's desire for his people and helping them realize just how far they had turned in their callousness towards him and, and then him calling them back to a relationship with him. We're going to see this as we start our book today. In fact, in the very first verse of the book of Malachi, Malachi's book starts out a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. Now, this is the NIV translation, and what's interesting about this translation, the NIV translates this second word prophecy, but in the Hebrew, the real word there that is used is the word oracle. So some of your Bible translations might say an oracle, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And the word oracle in Hebrew, it sort of means prophecy, but it has more of a connotation of meaning a burdensome message. So in other words, it should read in the Hebrew, a burdensome message, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. And that's important because whenever God uses that term oracle in the Old Testament, that burdensome message, it always precedes the coming announcement of judgment. And so when the Israelites would have read Malachi, a burdensome message to Israel from Malachi, they would have read that and they would have said, "Uh uh-oh, because they know every time God had said that through his prophets before, it meant judgment was coming. And so they would have felt the weight of these words. They would have felt the seriousness of these words. But then God does something really crazy here, really interesting. Instead of bringing a message of judgment like they would have expected right away based on how the book opens up, Malachi then says an oracle This burdensome message, they're expecting a word of judgment, but then God says the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. You see, what was different about Malachi's oracle was it was a word to Israel, not a word against Israel. That's a huge deal. God had a word for Israel. He was going to be calling them back into a relationship with him. He wasn't writing to announce his condemnation against them. It was still a burdensome message that he expected them to hear with weightiness and to take seriously. But the weight and the seriousness of this message is found in God's call of love to this rebellious people who had become calloused and hard-hearted towards him. And it's an incredible word. This was the last thing the Israelites had ringing in their ears for 400 years until the Messiah arrived. Was this call of God saying, turn, repent, come back, and let me embrace you once again. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to read through this passage this morning together. I want to come back and make some observations. We're going to look at four observations from this passage today. And then I've got one point of application for you today. I'm going to keep it nice and easy for you. One point of application. Now, of course, that, that application point has three subpoints to it, but, but uh, you know, that's just how we pastors roll. You know what I'm saying? That's what we do. So uh, we're going to read this passage. We're going to make some observations, and I've got some application for you that I want to share. So let's take a look at this. Malachi chapter 1, 1 through 5. An oracle, okay, a burdensome message, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you ask, how have you loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. Edom may say that we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. But this is what the Lord Almighty says, they may build, but I will demolish They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. It's a short passage, but there's some powerful stuff here. I want to pull out a few observations about this passage. In observation number one this morning, amidst Israel's rebelliousness, God's first response is love. This is incredible, right? These people didn't deserve God's love. In fact, if anything, they deserved his judgment. 
I mean, this, this week, I, I tell you what, Monday morning I opened up the book of Malachi and I started reading through this book again and I'm thinking, this is, this is just crazy. I'm tired of this stuff. It's like all summer long. It's like every week it's like Israel screwing up and God telling them to get your act together and come back. And it's like over and over again, right? And, and this is the cycle that we see in these people. And, and I started thinking to myself, why, can't they just figure this out? But then I started thinking to myself, is this really any different from me? Right? I mean, how God needs to remind me, Jason, get your act together. And it's like I come to church on Sunday morning and I get all inspired and I'm going to go out and I'm going to live for the Lord. And then I go home and pretty soon I'm arguing with my wife and yelling at my kids again. And it's like, gosh, unbelievable. I'm, I'm still the same messed up, screwed up dude I was. Right? And so this is what God is dealing with with the Israelites. Is it's this call to this rebellious people, but it's not a message of judgment. It's a message of his ongoing love and commitment to them. I found this really interesting quote this week from John Piper about this verse. He says, The Israelites had returned from the Babylonian exile. Jerusalem had been rebuilt. The temple was restored, but the people had not learned their lesson from the exile. They had grown skeptical of God's love, careless in worship, indifferent to the truth, disobedient to the covenant, faithless in their marriages, and stingy in their offerings. And to this carnal and rebellious people, God sent his messenger. And the first message he put on his lips was, I have loved you, declares the Lord. God's very first message is his declaration of love to his people. Now, friends, this is more than just a theological statement here. There's a personal, emotional appeal in these words. You need to hear these words as if they're the words of a a loving parent appealing to a wayward child. These words are the words of a, a lover pleading with his wandering spouse to return. That's what God is saying here in the tone, in the spirit. I have loved you. It's a call for the Israelites who he loves so much to come home. We have some close family friends who, for the last four years, have been searching for their wayward daughter. This young lady, her name is Amy, four years ago, she got hooked on drugs and she ended up running away from home and they hadn't heard from her in years. The last report they got of her whereabouts was a couple years ago. They got a call from the hospital emergency room in Seattle, Washington, and she had been checked into the hospital on an OD, and somehow she got checked out, and they lost touch with her once again. For the last four years, my friends have been praying and hoping and searching all over, trying to find their daughter. I talked with my buddy just recently, and he said, Jason, something interesting started happening this last year. He says, we started getting these weird phone calls. We started getting these phone calls, and on the other end of the phone was just silence. And I started thinking, I wonder if this is Amy. And I said, well, what, what do you do when these calls come? Because they come about once a week now. And he says, we pick up the phone, and there's just silence on the other end, and I, all I say is, Amy, I love you. Please come home. Friends, that's the heart of the message that God is conveying to Israel. He's calling to his lost children to come home. He's calling to these people whose hearts have been hardened and calloused, and he's saying, I just love you. Would you come home? This wasn't the first time God had conveyed this kind of personal love for Israel. You know, throughout the Old Testament, we see these very personal images of God's love for his people. Like in the book of Hosea, for example, where God expresses his love to Israel like the love of a parent. He says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. You know, it's like this father grabbing his little boy, you know, and walking step by step with him. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek. I bent down to feed them. This was God's love for his people. It's like a parent's love for their little boy, their little girl. Hosea describes God's love for Israel in another place like the love of a lover for their spouse. God says, therefore, I'm now going to allure her. 
I will lead her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards. I will make the valley of Acre a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came out of Egypt. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. This was the kind of love God had for Israel. The love of a parent, the love of a lover for their spouse. And and friends, knowing God's great love for her, Israel should have responded by returning his love and obeying his commands, which would have led to God's blessing. But instead, Israel's love had waned. And this leads to observation number two. Lack of faith led to lack of love, leading to lack of blessing. Sadly, we see Israel's callous response to God's appeal of love. How have you loved us? That's the attitude. These seven questions we're going to see in Malachi's prophecy. Cynicism, skepticism, coldness, sarcasm. That's the attitude. How have you loved us? Is Israel's response to God. By questioning God's claim of love for them, Israel was betraying their distrust and their lack of faith in God's word. And sadly, this lack of faith had come to manifest itself in this callousness towards God. Now friends, Israel here, you need to understand this, Israel probably felt justified in questioning God. You know, after all, it had been over a hundred years since Haggai and Zechariah had prophesied. And the Israelites, they'd done everything Haggai and Zechariah told them to do. You know, we rebuilt the city. We rebuilt the temple. We rebuilt the walls, God. Come on. Where's this Messiah you promised us? And they were still being governed by the Persians. They were still experiencing difficult times financially. And the Messiah hadn't come. The kingdom hadn't come. And so the Israelites' attitude was this. If God isn't going to be here for us, then forget him. We're not going to be there for him either. That was their attitude. Friends, have you ever been there before? You ever had that kind of thought, that experience of feeling justified and rebelling against God because you felt like he hadn't been faithful to you? Man, I think that's common for a lot of us. I remember back when I was uh, in seminary, I had just finished my first year of seminary. That year I had been dating this girl and she ended up breaking my heart that summer and it was just shattered into a thousand pieces and, and I was just devastated. And I said, you know, God, this is what you're gonna do for me? This is how you treat me? God, I'm going to seminary to become a pastor to serve you and this is what you're gonna do to me? You're gonna destroy my life like this? So I said, well, I'm going to show you, God. And you know what I did? I dropped out of seminary. I dropped out of seminary. I went that fall. I took three months off. I moved to my, uh, out to California with my buddy, living with his, him and his college roommates in a beach house in Santa Barbara. And, and I just wasted three months of my life. And man, I tell you what, did I ever show God something? I sure showed him. I, how stupid. You know what I'm saying? But... You know, have you ever been there? It's like, man, God, if you're not going to show up for me, then I'm not going to show up for you. And this is what you get. That was their attitude. That was Israel's attitude. That's a, and I think that's a common attitude that a lot of us wrestle with sometimes. It's like, you know what, God, if you're not giving me the goodies, then forget it because that's really what I'm in this thing for. Right? And it, all that does is it betrays our own warped perspective of what our faith is really all about. We set ourselves up as God and take him off the throne when in reality, he's the one who's always on the throne, right? And we act like he owes us something. See, the problem was for Israel, and really for all of us when we get in those times like that, Israel's perception didn't match reality. Their perception of their circumstances didn't match reality. Because here's the promise, friends. God never stops loving, no matter what your experience, no matter what your circumstances. And God is ultimately faithful, no matter what disappointments or challenges you think you're facing. 
He never stops loving. He's ultimately faithful. And if Israel had simply trusted God's word, what they would have seen was that their misfortunes were really the result, not the cause of their disobedience. See, they thought they were justified in walking away from God because he had been unfaithful to to them. But the reality is, is the problems they were all experiencing were of their own making in being unfaithful to the Lord, first and foremost. And so here in our journey in the book of Malachi, what we're gonna find is that God is gonna continue and repeatedly call the Israelites back to repentance. Because that's what they really needed. And repentance, friends, really the word repentance means to have a change of heart. It means to turn around 180 degrees. It means, you know what, you are walking in a direction that is gonna lead to nowhere fast, It's going to screw up your life and it's going to mess up your relationship with the Lord and probably a whole bunch of other people in your life. And if you don't get things fixed and turn around and start going in the other direction quick, you're in big trouble. That's that's literally what repentance means. It means to turn around and change course. And so God is going to call the Israelites and I promise you some of us this journey through Malachi, we're going to hear this call too in our own lives because God is going to call us and he's going to say, Jason, you got to get your act together and turn around and start going the other direction because you're walking away from me. And walking away from God never leads to anything good. Right? I, I know we could tell stories all day about that. Right, of how we've taken times in our lives and we've walked away from God and we thought, you know, I know better than him. And we end up finding ourselves in destinations we don't want to be. See, repentance is about coming back into a wholehearted love, a wholehearted devotion for God. And it's then when we pursue God in faithfulness, when we walk in his will, then we begin to experience the fullness of life that God promises us in a relationship with him. And this is the consistent message throughout the Bible. We're going to see it here in Malachi. Now, Israel had just raised this serious charge against God. They said, how have you loved us? And obviously, God would have been totally justified in dropping lightning bolts on them right then and there. You know what I'm saying? But he doesn't. And why? He doesn't because he loves them. And so God, in his grace in his grace, answers Israel's fallacious charge. And his answer is found in two parts, beginning in observation number three. God's love is seen in his election, his choice of Israel. How have you loved us, Israel says. And God says, number one, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Jacob was the patriarch that Israel had descended from. Abraham had two sons, Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael was the firstborn son, but he didn't inherit the blessing. Isaac inherited the blessing. Ishmael became the father of a great nation, the Arab peoples, but God had prophesied that he would live by the sword and always be at war against his brothers. Isn't that interesting? We see that history still today in the Arab peoples still at war against their brothers. God gave the promise to Isaac. Isaac had two sons, Esau and Jacob. Esau was the firstborn. He should have inherited the blessing. But no, God says, Isaac, your son Jacob is going to inherit the blessing. He's going to become the father of Israel, the secondborn. And Esau, he too will become a great nation. He's going to become the father of the Edomites. But they're going to be a people as well who are going to live by the sword, who are going to be at war against their brothers. And so Jacob becomes the father of the nation of Israel. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Now a lot of us, we get sort of caught off guard by this seemingly harsh language, right? I mean, this is God saying this, right? Jacob I've loved, Esau I hated? God says that? Well, see, what you need to understand, friends, is this wasn't an expression of God's emotions, okay? This was just simply common, typical, ancient, Near Eastern covenantal language that God is using to describe his choice of Jacob. We see this in other ancient records of covenants made between people. They used this language back in those days, choosing a preference, I have loved this one and I have hated this one. 
right? Now, we don't talk like that anymore, right? Like, I don't say in making my choice for one over the other, I hate this and I love this, but that's the kind of language they used back in those days. It was covenantal language, and, and we don't understand it, but that was the common way it worked. Now, God had covenanted with Jacob. And, and the real question I have here, the real question isn't why God hated Esau, but why he loved Jacob, right? I mean, Esau was the firstborn. He should have inherited the blessing. Jacob was the secondborn. And if you remember the story of Jacob, Jacob was a little liar. He was a little conniver, right? I mean, he stole his brother's birthright. And yet God chose Jacob to be the favored son who would inherit the blessing. Why did he do that? It was because even before they were born, God had prophesied that it would be Jacob over Esau, right? Now, here's the thing. This language, I don't get this language. I don't like this language. I wish God would have expressed this choice a little bit differently. But we need to understand something. This language ultimately needs to be filtered through our total understanding of who God is, including those verses like John 3, 16, for God so loved the world, right? When I hear the term world, I'm thinking Esau. I'm thinking Edom. He loved them, right? So whatever this means has to be interpreted in light of that as well. Second Peter 3, 9, God wants none to perish and all to come to repentance, right? That's as equally true as this, right? So we need to understand these verses in light of the totality of God's nature and character. Now, here's the thing. Ultimately, the bottom line is this. No human reasoning can fully explain God's choice, okay? If you're looking for a good answer for this one, I really don't have it for you, okay? No human reasoning can fully explain God's choice other than this. God's love for Jacob was simply an act of grace, an act of election, and an act of God's sovereignty, this was Paul's point in Romans 9, 14 through 15, where, where God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Friends, it is God's right as God to make these kinds of choices. See, he is the creator, right? We are creation. When we confuse those things, we have trouble with passages like these. When we submit to the authority of the creator, then all of a sudden we have to take the posture of, you know what, I don't understand it. I might not necessarily like it, but he's God and I'm not. And God says, how have you loved me? Israel says, how have you loved me, God? And God says, number one, I've loved you in that I chose you. There was nothing about you that deserved to be chosen, but I chose you. That's how I loved you. And then secondly, observation number four, God's love is seen in his faithfulness to Israel as compared to Edom. Not only does God tell Israel that I chose you, but God then reminds Israel of his faithfulness to them as opposed to their neighbors, the Edomites. I have turned his mountains into a wasteland. This is really interesting what took place here. You see, Edom were Israel's neighbors directly to the east and south of Israel, what would be modern-day Jordan, the country of Jordan. And you remember 100 years earlier, the Babylonians had come and they had taken the Israelites into exile. Or actually, a little bit more than 100 years before, they had taken the Israelites into exile. Well, the Babylonians, they came from east of Israel, right? And to come to Israel, they would have had to go through Israel's neighbors first. And the first neighbor they would have had to go through to get to Israel would have been the Edomites, right? It wasn't like the Babylonians walked up to the border of Edom and said, hey, you guys mind if we just march through here? We're going to go conquer Israel. We'll leave you guys alone and be on our way. No, the Babylonians, they came to conquer Israel, but on their way to conquer Israel, they had to first go through and conquer Edom, Right? So the Babylonians, they come through and they wipe out the Edomites. They totally destroy them. But look at what Malachi says. Malachi says that Edom says to the Lord, though we have been crushed, we will rebuild the ruins. 
But this is what the Lord Almighty says. They may build, but I will demolish. They will be called the wicked land, a people always under the wrath of the Lord. You will see it with your own eyes and say, great is the Lord even beyond the borders of Israel. So Babylon destroys the Edomites the same time they destroyed the Israelites and took them into captivity, okay? But the Edomites come back just like the Israelites came back. And the Edomites start to rebuild. But God had prophesied that they were going to be a wasteland. They were going to be a place for desert jackals. And so what happened was in the 5th century, right as Malachi is writing, the Nabataean Arabs from the south, the Ishmaelites, who God had prophesied would live by the sword and always be at war against their brothers, the Nabataean Arabs push north and destroy the Edomites once and for all. And friends, to this day, Edom has never been rebuilt, just like Malachi tells us in God's word here. Take a look at these pictures here. A few years ago, actually not more than a few years, when I was in college, I had the chance to go to uh, study in Israel. And during our time in Israel, we went and spent a weekend in Petra, Jordan. Petra, Jordan is where uh, ancient Edom was. This was the capital of the Edomite Empire, just to the southeast of Israel today. You can go to Petra, Jordan today, and Edom, it was an incredible empire. It was built up in the mountains, and they carved these incredible palaces and homes right into the cliffs. They had a fresh water source. Friends, I'm telling you, if you were ever going to build an impenetrable fortress kingdom, this is where you would do it. I mean, they were way up in the mountains. They were untouchable. They had fresh water. They had every reason to have a thriving, surviving empire. But friends, you know what? If you go to Edom today, for five bucks you can ride camels down the streets. It's never been rebuilt. It's a tourist trap. And the Israelites, they're questioning God. How have you loved us? And God essentially says to them, take a look at your neighbors for Pete's sake. You've come home, you've rebuilt, you've got your city, you've got your temple, you've got the walls. Look at them, they're a tourist attraction. How have I loved you? Man, the Israelites had failed to count their blessings. That's what's going on here. They're doubting God's love and faithfulness and God is saying, look next door. Just look next door. You don't think I love you? What are you doing here? You don't belong here. Just like they don't belong there. But here you are. That's how I loved you. That's how I'm faithful to you. And they had failed to count their blessings. They got so caught up in their sorrow, their pity party. Oh, the Messiah hasn't come yet. It's been a hundred years. Unbelievable. And God is saying the obvious, look next door. Look at how faithful I've been. Friends, isn't that just common for so many of us as humans, right? It's like, man, if you step back, honestly, I don't care who you are, but if you step back for a few minutes and you just say, you know, let me just count my blessings. Let me just stop and, and get over this little pity party I'm having over my light and momentary afflictions, as the Apostle Paul calls them, and let me step back and count all of the ways God has been faithful and good to me, and it just begins to overwhelm you, friends. It just begins to overwhelm you. My grandpa, he was a Baptist minister for 60 years. He used to preach a famous message. He had a famous sermon. He titled it, Be Thankful for What You Do Not Have. Be Thankful for What You Do Not Have. You see, a lot of times we, got, we get caught up in our, our self-absorption and our pity over the light and momentary trials we're experiencing. But when we step back and look at the ways that God has been faithful, if we can have an attitude of gratitude, if we can be thankful for what we do not have, it changes everything. Man, this last week, I was going through this myself. I, you know, my wife's going through cancer, and my kids are just, they're struggling with this whole thing, and it's, they're acting out in behavior issues because of this, and I'm just frustrated because, you know, I'm, I'm, the, I'm the pastor, I'm the expert, right? I'm supposed to have all the answers on how to have a healthy, happy family, and we're just, we're struggling, and I'm frustrated with my kids, and I'm yelling at them, and I'm, you know, I'm becoming somebody I don't want to be in this whole deal, and... And I start thinking to myself, you know, man, why are my kids so screwed up? Why is my family so messed up? You know, God, what's going, you know. And I, and I needed to step back for a minute, and God just said, Jason, 
Be thankful for what you do not have. And I started, God just put, put this couple into my mind, some friends of mine, some friends of mine who've been struggling for the last 10 years to get pregnant. God just put them into my mind as I was having my little pity party about my kids misbehaving. And he said, Jason, those friends of yours, they would take your kids' misbehavior in a heartbeat for the privilege of having kids. Be thankful for what you do not have. See, your attitude, your perspective, it makes all the difference. And that's what God's reminding the Israelites of here. Count your blessings. Look at the ways that I've been faithful. Now, I want you to notice how our passage ends here, verse 5. Malachi ends it with this declaration that a day would come when the Israelites would declare, Great is the Lord, even beyond the borders of Israel. Malachi says that there's a day that's coming when Israel's doubts and cynicism would turn to praise. And what's going to change? Why that change? Friends, what changed here is that Israel in the book of Malachi is being given a fresh vision of the love and faithfulness of God. You know, sometimes we just need a fresh vision of God's love and faithfulness. I mean, I I need that too. That's why we come to church every week. That's one of the reasons we come to church every week. It's so that we can be reminded of who our God is and his love and his faithfulness to us because we need that. God knows we need that. We're forgetful people. How easy it is to, you know, to get fired up. You, come, you, know, you come home from a retreat or you come home from church on Sunday morning or a great class on Wednesday night and you're just like, man, I'm, gonna, I'm on fire. I'm going to live for the Lord. And then the next thing you know, you know, you're falling back into those same patterns of being that person you don't want to be again. We're forgetful people. I said earlier, you know, Malachi is like a mirror for our present day. And I think that's so true. We're going to see that in the coming weeks. Today in our point of application, I got one point of application I want to go through this morning. And uh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm bummed because I've got about an hour's worth of great material here for you. And uh, we don't have time for that. That's what you get for doing a Saturday night special, right? That's when you're finishing your sermon on Saturday night. That's what Pastor Rick calls it, a Saturday night special. And uh, so I got an hour's worth of material for you, but I'm not going to leave you with that. I'm going to make this quick. Here's the point of application. What do we do with this passage today? Friends, all of us face the temptation to question God's love. I don't care who you are. I think all of us, this is a common human reality. We all face the temptation to question God's love. Just like the Israelites, how have you loved me, God? And I'll tell you something. This is where I've been living the last couple months. Right? Some of you guys know my wife has been diagnosed with cancer and this last couple months have absolutely just not been cool at all, right? There, there's nothing, there's nothing I can say positive about our experience of cancer. It just, it's just, it stinks. It, it starts, it beats you up, and it just keeps beating you up, and it never relents. And it's just, you know, it's hard on our marriage. It's hard on our kids. I mean, it just, it just stinks all around. There's nothing good to say about it. And I'll tell you something, it's been really tempting many times in the last couple months to step back and say, this is how you love me, God? You, this is what you do for us? And, and then I start reminding God of all the things that he owes me because, you know, I'm a pastor, right? And I'm trying to be faithful to my wife and, and, and I'm trying to be a good father. God, I, I'm doing everything right. And, and not only that, I'm telling everybody else how to do everything right. And this is how you pay me back, how you love me? We're not immune to those temptations, friends. None of us. And, and I know that there are people in our church who are going through some difficult times right now, too. I know there are people in here who are, who are going through separation or divorce in their marriages. And you might be questioning God's love. There are people here dealing with trials with their kids or, or the loss of a job or, or, or health struggles of your own. And I know when you go through these trials, it gets really easy to say, how have you loved me, God? This is it? This is what I get? And I'm going to tell you something, Satan absolutely loves to twist this knife. Oh man, if you start buying into those lies, this cynical attitude towards God, as soon as you start 
entertaining those thoughts, be ready because Satan, and he's going to come and he's just going to twist that knife and he's going to remind you how much God owes you and how much God has really screwed up your life and, and, and how much God really loves you. Yeah, thanks God, this cancer is awesome. He'll just twist that knife if you start entertaining those thoughts. And so I'm going to tell you right here this morning, friends, you need to combat that temptation. You need to head it off at the pass right away or it will beat you up and it will ultimately destroy you. You can't entertain those thoughts. Like Israel, we need a fresh vision of the love and faithfulness of God. Sometimes we just need to be reminded of the big picture. And I'm going to tell you what, how have I survived the last two months in, in the trials that we're going through in a fa- as our family, the, how my wife is surviving, how my kids are surviving. It, it absolutely stinks, but I'm going to tell you something. I, I honestly don't think we would make it as a family if I didn't ultimately believe absolutely in these three promises. See, we need to step back and we need to look at the big picture. Romans 5.8 says that God has proved his love for us. How has he proved his love for us? Let me share three points with you. Number one, just like Jacob, followers of Christ are a chosen people. How have you loved me, God? God says, number one, Jason, I chose you. I chose you before the foundation of the world. Look what the Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter one. You want to start having a pity party about your circumstances? Just remember who you are as a follower of Christ. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ. Friends, that's who you are. You're a chosen person. Man, the next time you start, you know, feeling that temptation to question God's love, you need to stop. You need to step back and say, God chose me. Man, if there is nothing else in the whole circumstances of my life that I give God glory and praise for, this is enough. It's that he chose me. Man, do you know what it's like to be a chosen person? When I was a counselor at a, at a Bible camp, a summer camp, for a couple of years when I was in college, one summer we had a kid at our camp, his name was Jarek. And Jarek, you know, he was fifth grade, he was, he was short, he was pudgy, he had acne. He just, he was one of those kids, he was always on the outside of everything, you know? And one day we were organizing a kickball game one afternoon and the counselors, we were picking teams and, and I picked Jarek first to come and be on my team. And Jarek walked up to me and he had tears rolling down his face. I said, Jarek, what's wrong? He said, Jason, I've never been chosen first for anything in my entire life. Friends, that's what it means to be chosen. God chose you. How have you loved me? God says, I chose you. Secondly, how has God loved us? Followers of Christ are a saved people. It's not just that he chose us, but he saved us. 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And friends, this was just a gift. (laughs) It was just a gift. It wasn't anything that we deserved. It wasn't anything that we earned, that we bought, that we worked for. It was just a gift of God's love. He sent his son. He went to the cross. He says, you want to know how much I love you? Take a look at my back. I got 40 lashes here that shows you how much I love you. I got holes in my wrists and my ankles that show you how much I love you. I got a crown of thorns in my head that shows you how much I love you. And I did this for you for no other reason than I had chosen you before the foundation of the world to be in a relationship with me. And I love you so much that I would go to any lengths. I would pay any price. I would count any cost to bring you back into a relationship with me. That's how much God loves you. And thirdly, followers of Christ are loved people. Our God is faithful. 
You know, man, one of the greatest verses that I go to when I'm struggling with questioning God's love, his faithfulness in my life, I go to 1 Peter. 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Friends, you need to understand something. Due time isn't you time. <laughs> okay? See, we, we, want, we want God's time to be on our time frame, right? Like, like you know, God, that... that miraculous event in my wife's life, that would have been cool like two weeks ago, right? Not another eight weeks of chemo and surgery and radiation and everything else. Like that miracle would have been cool like two weeks ago. But we haven't gotten that miracle. But you know what? I believe absolutely wholeheartedly that God is going to lift us up in due time. And so we continue to cast our cares upon him because we know he loves us and he cares for us. And I tell you what, friends, if you have not set in your heart and, and made absolutely firm that conviction in your own life, that no matter what I face, no matter what trials, no matter what struggles, circumstances, tribulations, if you haven't made up in your mind right now that I know absolutely God is faithful, and it doesn't matter what crosses my path, God is faithful, and I'm going to continue to cast my cares on him because I know he's going to lift us up in due time. He's going to restore us. He's going to make us strong, firm, and steadfast. And if that happens in this life, praise him for it. And if it doesn't happen till the next life, we'll praise him for that too. Because honestly, ultimately, our life is more than the 70, 80, 90 years God gives us here. Our life is about eternity. And God is working in our lives to make us holy more than he's worried about making us happy in the here and the now. He's working to make us into that person he wants us to be for all of eternity. And as Matt Chandler said in our ABF series last week, 20,000 years from today, my wife's cancer is not even going to be on our radar screen in terms of what we care about, what we think about in light of eternity and the majesty of who our great God is and what he was doing in that circumstance in our life. And if you don't believe this, friends, I don't know how you're going to get through those trials. I don't. I just don't. Young people here, a lot of you guys, you haven't experienced a lot of trials and difficulties in your life, but I'm telling you, strap on your seatbelts because they're coming. And if you are not firm in your conviction right here and right now, God loves me and he is faithful and it doesn't matter what crosses my path because every single thing in my life is first father filtered. If you haven't set that conviction firmly in your heart, you're, you're done for. You, you are. It's just, it's just going to kill you. This is what gets you through it. This is the promise that sustains. This is who our God is. I conclude with this. God's word to us today is the same as his word to the Israelites 2,500 years ago. I have loved you, declares the Lord. And the question is, how will you respond to God's love? How will you respond? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your faithfulness to us. We thank you for your great love. We thank you for the promises that you give us in your word, like those here in the book of Malachi. Jesus, would you implant these, would you embed these promises, these truths deeply in our heart today? I, I pray especially for my friends here this morning who are going through some very difficult, trying things in their own lives right now, God. Would you set these convictions firmly in their hearts, Lord, to trust you and trust in your love and trust in your faithfulness no matter what they might be going through. And may they experience your presence and your peace in a new and powerful way today. God, we thank you for who you are and your great love for your people. And Lord, we, 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 I, Lord, help us live in a conviction that gives that praise and honor back to you because you deserve it, Lord. You are God. You are so good. And we thank you for this, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.